Start with a test. Start with a test. Everybody excited for tests? When I when I say and now a surprise test, does that make it heart jump a little bit? Cold sweats breaking out. So the first test is uh, you got to be under eighteen for this test. Okay, so yeah. You'll pass this test very easily if you're over eight. Well, we'll see. So if you are under 18, raise your hand if you know what this is. What is that? A glitch. Andrew, what is it? Technical difficulty thing. Any other guesses? Corby. When something goes wrong. Yeah, so those are all partially right. This is what's called a test card or a test pattern. And uh, if, if you were alive back when not every TV station broadcast 24 hours a day at midnight or 1 in the morning when the, bro- when the TV would go off, this might go up. It's kind of the, the default thing that comes out on a broadcast station back in the 80s and 90s, right? And it's, it's a test pattern because it's there to test if your TV is receiving the signal correctly and displaying it correctly. All right, so now, if you're over 18, tell me what this one is. Yeah, anybody can answer this one. It's a board game. (laughs) Kind of looks like it. It looks like a Ouija board. So this is also a test pattern. This is one of the first test patterns. It's called the Indian head test pattern for obvious reasons. This was in the 40s. This was put out back in the very beginning of television. What's, what's different about it from the one we looked at a minute ago? What's different, Corby? What's that? There's more detail, yeah? Anything else? I heard somebody mention, yeah? It's black and white, right, because the first TVs back in the 40s, 50s, 60s, no color right? Something else. See all the circles? The early TVs ran on vacuum tubes, not solid-state electronics that we had in the 80s and and now forward. And those uh, circles were used to help calibrate and let you test things about how the operation of the vacuum tubes were going. So, if you click to the next one, there's actually every single one of these test patterns has a whole bunch of tests that are embedded in it that if you don't know what you're looking for, you don't see because they were specifically designed for the TV, the broadcast system, et cetera, of that time, right? So all of these different things. They still use test patterns today, but you almost never see them. So this is the test, one of the test patterns that's used a lot today, and you can't see it because this is a still image of it, but it's actually moves. Those other test patterns are static, they don't change. This one moves, there's a whole bunch of things that move around on it because it's being test, it's testing things. Like if you went to Netflix's test lab, they might be running this on their receiver software and making sure everything works and is it sharp and is it at the right resolution, is the color gamut correct, all of these different things. This test pattern has all of those different tests in it. So we have these test patterns that are designed to test the software now the receivers, the broadcast signal from those specific times. They were specifically designed for the technology of the time. But the goal of the test patterns was the same. Is the signal being received and displayed correctly? 
Is the system operating the way it was meant to be? Does, are there any tweaks or improvements that need to be made? Do we need to make any adjustments to improve the quality of that image and get it to the standard that is expected? So if you open your Bibles to chapter 22, Mark's going to come up and read here in a minute. And this chapter is about a test, a test for Abraham. And this is a test that God administers. And if, if we know anything about God, God is very specific. God designs things specifically for us as individuals. And so this test was specifically designed for Abraham. So the question is, like the test patterns that were showing us or used, their goal was to verify the operation of the TV system, what is the test that God is going to administer on Abraham? What is it designed to show? What is its goal? So as Mark comes to read, where is Mark? Oh, there he is. As Mark comes to read, listen and see if you can hear what the purpose of this test that's specifically designed for Abraham at this time, at this moment, what is the goal of that test? Genesis 22. After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, Here I am. And he said, Take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. Then Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on his son Isaac his son. And he took in his hand the fire and the knife. So they went, both of them, together. And Isaac said to his father Abraham, My father. And he said to him, Here I am, my son. He said, Behold the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went, both of them, together. And when they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built an altar there and laid on the wood... Uh, in order, and bound his, uh, Isaac his son and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, Here I am. He said, Do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him, for now I know that you fear God, seeing that you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked. And behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of the place the Lord will provide. As it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. And the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and have not withheld your son 
your only son. I will surely bless you, and I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore, and your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. And in your offspring shall all nations of the earth be blessed, because you have obeyed my voice. So Abraham returned to his young men, and they arose and went together to Beersheba. And Abraham lived in Beersheba. Now after these things, it was told to Abraham, Behold, Milcah also has borne children to your brother Nahor, Uz, his firstborn, Buz, his brother, Kemuel, the father of Aram, Chesed, Hazo, Pildash, Jidlaf, and Bethuel. Bethuel fathered Rebekah. These eight Milcah bore to Nahor, Abraham's brother. Moreover, his concubine, whose name was Reuma, bore Teba, Geham, Tehash, and Meakah. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to God. Will you pray with me? Dear Lord, I pray that you would be here right now, Lord. Uh, in this room, in the rooms in the back with the kids, Lord, uh, that your spirit would be present here with us, Lord, uh, that you would be ministering to those teaching in the back, that you would be ministering to the hearts of the kids, Lord, that there would be discipleship going on back there, Lord, that your word would be spread to the children in the back, Lord. We desire that earnestly, Lord, and I know you do too. So, Lord, we pray that you would be active there. Lord, I pray that you would be active here, Lord, that you would bless my words, Lord, that anything that comes out of my mouth that is not from your word, Lord, that would pass by the ears of those listening, Lord. And, Lord, I pray for those that are listening, Lord, that you would prepare their hearts, prepare them to receive your word, Lord, not mine, but your word alone. Pray you can do this, Lord. We know you can. So we ask you to come. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. So, chapter 22. This chapter really represents the pinnacle of Abraham's journey. We met Abraham, if you can believe it, back in chapter 12. We're in chapter 22, so 10 chapters ago. And I went back and looked. That was the week before Thanksgiving last November. So we, we've been with Abraham for most of that time for quite a while. And, and I think that's it's really good as we come to chapter 22 that we spent all that time with Abraham leading up. Because if you read chapter 22 without re- reading the preceding 10 chapters, you might get the wrong idea of what's going on here. You might look at this and go, what is God asking Abraham to do? What? And Abraham just complies with no questions? to this this cruel request of God to kill his only beloved son? How could God ask this? What what kind of father is Abraham? What what am I supposed to do with this? If you're a kid sitting here, you might hear this and go, "Uh, I I have a few questions and concerns. So it's really important that we look at this in the full context of the last 10 chapters. All of the things that Abraham has gone through with God. God's been continuously showing Abraham who he is and that he is worthy of complete 
complete trust and obedience. And Abraham, as we've seen, has been slowly and imperfectly getting the message, starting to figure it out, and growing in his faith and trust. All of these things, everything that we've seen for the last 10 chapters has been centered around these promises that God has made. And they're really about two main things. The land and progeny, or children, and, and, and his descendants thereof. So the land and, and progeny, right? The progeny is meant to be a great multitude, like dust, like the stars in the sky, a great nation, and a blessing to all the families on the earth. Let's look at a couple of these. So, Genesis 12, 2 to 3. This is the first one. This is God speaking. And I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Now remember, Abraham at this point has no children, and he is already old, and his wife Sarah is past prime childbearing ages. Keep going. Genesis 13, 14 to 16. The Lord said to Abraham after Lot had separated from him, so this is, remember back, Lot and Abraham separate. Lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are northward and southward, eastward and westward, for all the land that you see I will give to you and to your offspring forever. So that's the promise of the land. And then verse 16 continues on. I will make your offspring as the dust of the earth, so that if one can count the dust of the earth, your offspring can also be counted. Genesis 17, 15 to 21. This is where we get when uh, Isaac's birth is specifically foretold for Sarah. As for Sarai, your wife, you shall not call her Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name. I will bless her, and moreover, I will give you a son by her. I will bless her, and she shall become nations. Kings of people shall come from her. Verse 19, God said, Sarah, your wife shall bear you a son, and you shall call his name Isaac. I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his offspring after him. But I will establish my covenant with Isaac, whom Sarah shall bear to you at this time next year. God is really, really clear here that the, the blessing that he is going to give, this great nation, he's going to build this through Isaac. Isaac born from Sarah. Sarah will be blessed. She will have a child. You will name him Isaac. He wants no doubt, right? We've talked about this. So consider all these things that, that Abraham's been through. He's been through wars. He's seen Sodom and Gomorrah destroyed. He's seen Lot saved. He's met all of these new neighbors he's going to have in this land that God's promised, right? Abimelech, Melchizedek, all of these folks, and they have blessed him. They have confirmed the blessings that God has told him about. Even when Abraham has been impatient, even when he's lacked faith, God has shown how he is still sovereign 
worthy of trust and able to still make his promises come to pass. God is teaching, training, testing, teaching, training, testing over and over again. And this culminated in what we looked at over the past two weeks in chapter 21 with the birth of Isaac and then resolution to disputes with Abimelech about the land. God's completed these promises. He's completed the promise. He's delivered the land and he's delivered the son through which this everlasting covenant that he's promised will come. Now this journey that we've been on from chapter 12 to where, where we are now is probably about 35 years from what I read. It was about 25 years from chapter 12 to uh, Isaac's birth, and most folks agree Isaac is probably a teenager here, so at least 35 years. Abraham has been walking, being trained specifically by the God of the universe for the last 35, maybe 40 years. And he's well over 100 now. He's had this intense, life-transforming, complete and totally saturated one-on-one training with God for 35 years. And God has demonstrated over and over again, despite any lack of faith, any obstacle, that he is still able to fulfill his promises. He is sovereign and trustworthy. So when we get to chapter 22, and this test is brought to Abraham, that's where Abraham's at. He's 35 years into God training him for this very specific test. So what, what, what is the test? Right? Verse 1, chapter 22 says, God, all these, after these things, God tested Abraham. What does he ask him to do? He says, take your son on what we find out is going to be a three-day journey to a very specific location in the land of Mora, And there, you are going to offer him to me as a burnt offering. And in case you weren't clear, a burnt offering means his body will be completely consumed with fire. That's what God asks Abraham to do. Now, I want, I want to just pause here for a minute. And note the care that God takes as he asks Abraham to do this. Look with me. Verse 2. Take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Morah and offer him there as a burnt offering. God knows that what he is asking of Abraham is difficult. He wants to be clear what he's asking, but he knows that just asking, that's going to be hard for Abraham to hear. And God knows this because he knows a little something about having one and only son, beloved son, that he asked to do something hard. We'll get to that. But just note the care here. This is not a far-removed God that is dictating a difficult task, like a taskmaster. He cares. He knows what he's asking is hard. 
So I asked you at the beginning, before Mark read, what is the purpose of this test? What is the purpose of this test? And I'll give you a hint. It's embedded right here in the chapter. It's in verse 12. God says, For now I know that you fear God. How does God test that Abraham truly fears him? He asks him to give up what he loves more than anything else, what he's been waiting for, what he's been promised, and now that promise he's seen fulfilled, he asks him to give up his son, his only son, his beloved son, to prove that he fears God more than anything. God is testing Abraham. Does Abraham trust God to fulfill the covenant? Does, God, does Abraham have faith that God can and will fulfill his purposes? Because, let's face it, this test presents a conflict. Right? God said very clearly, we read it, I'll put it up on the screen again, verse uh, 19 out of chapter 17. Sarah, your wife, will bear you a son, and you shall call his name Isaac. I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his offspring after him. And now he's asked Abraham to sacrifice Isaac. How, how's this going to work? Isaac doesn't have any children. There's no offspring yet. And yet you're going to ask me to kill him. You're asking me to go and sacrifice him, kill him. Where will the offspring come from if Isaac's dead? How can you do both of these things, God? How can you do both of them? Abraham knows all this, and obviously he's got questions, so he responds with questions. See, oh, no. No questions. Verse 3. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled the donkey, and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. No questions. He gets up the next morning after God has told him this. He saddles up. He gets the wood, gets everybody together, and off they go. They've got the wood to build the altar. They've got the wood to be consumed with fire and burn up the body of his son. And off he goes. They travel for three days. And then when Abraham sees the location from afar, he leaves the two young men to wait until they return. And Isaac carries the wood. Abraham carries the fire and the knife, and they trek up the hill that God has shown them where this sacrifice is to take place. So, as I, as I prepared this, I, I listened to a lot of sermons. I always want to hear, what, what's, the, what's the take here, right? What are some of these uh, pastors and theologians that I respect greatly, what's the What's the consensus view of this? There's lots of different takes, as seems to be the case with a lot of these passages. One, one of the takes was that Abraham was blindly following God in what he asked, right? And, and if you read this, again, in isolation from the last 10 chapters, I could see where you get there, right? No questions, directly off, blindly follow. God said to do it, I'm doing it, right? But remember, 
He's been mentored and guided by God for the last 35, 40 years. This isn't blind obedience. It's obedience, to be sure. It's absolutely, quickly, exacting, obedient. But it's not blind. He has been trained and prepared for this moment. All the previous times, Abraham was challenged in smaller ways to show fear of the Lord and trust him. Sometimes he failed, sometimes he didn't. But those were all preparing him. Abraham is obeying, but he is fully informed. He's experienced faith in who God is and what he does. And so as he follows God, it's not blind. Let's keep going. Verse 7. So they're climbing that hill, and Isaac, he's got a question. And Isaac said to his father Abraham, my father, and Abraham responded, here I am, my son. He said, behold, uh, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for burnt offering? Seems like a reasonable question to me. If I was in Isaac's shoes, I think I would have that same question. So what do we learn from this? Very appropriate question. I think we, we do learn for sure that Isaac is old enough to know what's going on. He, by the way, is carrying all the wood that would have to be enough to burn him up, so clearly he's strong, and um, I don't know if you know, you've ever thought about your young child carrying a bunch of wood. I think you would hear more uh, questions and uh, maybe, maybe a few complaints about things. So Isaac, Isaac here is fully obedient. He's just got a question uh, about what's going on. The other thing I think this shows us is that um, Abraham's not fully revealed the plan to him. And that a burnt offering using a lamb is something that has at least happened once before. Probably is fairly commonplace. Because Isaac asks the question, where is the offering? Where is the lamb? Now, Abraham's answer in verse 8 is just such a beautiful response, such, such an excellent response to this question, and reveals, it reveals Abraham's heart. Verse 8, Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. That's, that's Abraham's faith encompassed right there. He doesn't explain how. We don't exactly know from that exactly what Abraham thinks is going to happen, but he says with confidence, God will provide the lamb. So it's not totally clear. Does he believe that a lamb will appear? Does he believe that Isaac is the lamb and he will die and yet somehow God will still keep his promises? Well, thankfully, we have help, as I've found, uh, you'll see in several places here, and we've done uh, over the last couple weeks, it's so helpful to go look at what the New Testament says about uh, what's going on here in Genesis. So Hebrews 11, verse 17 by faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promise was in fact, was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. He, this is speaking of Abraham, he considered 
that God was able even to raise him back from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. So what does this say? It says Abraham believed that he was going to have to go through with slaughtering and sacrificing Isaac. And he was prepared to do that because he believed that if he did that in obedience to God, God could raise Isaac from the dead. Isaac would be restored. That's what Abraham believed. So in verse 9, they reach the location God revealed, and they go, they go all the way. The altar is built, the wood is laid out, Isaac is bound and laid on the wood. And notice the compliance of Isaac. This is a 20-something teenager, maybe, year old man. He isn't being forced or overpowered by a hundred-plus-year-old Abraham. He doesn't struggle. He doesn't run. He's willingly being bound and laid on an altar that he helped build and knows is primed to burn. He knows, Isaac knows, he is the offering. He's been taught by his father and mother he knows these same promises. He knows and fears the Lord just like Abraham. He believes the promises just like his father, as much as his father. Imagine the agony, Abraham, even believing and knowing God would keep his promises. The idea he was going to slaughter his only son, and then burn him. He was prepared to go all the way. No doubts. But what an agonizing task. And consider that he had to ride three days or walk three days with, with Isaac there, knowing that that's what he was going to have to do. It's not ten minutes and it's over. Three days he had to consider that. Verse 10, we get to the pivotal moment. Abraham raises the knife, fully prepared to slaughter his son, and, verse 11, the angel of the Lord shows up. Abraham! Abraham! Here I am, Lord. Do you hear that relief in Abraham's voice? In verse 11. Verse 12, the angel of the Lord says, Do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. Abraham feared God so much, he was willing to give up what he loved the most. His one and only son. Abraham has passed the test. He showed that he fears the Lord, that he was willing to do what God asked of him, no matter what it cost. And then, in the miraculous way that only God can, Abraham turns and finds the unblemished ram God has provided, caught by its horns in a thicket. He pulls Isaac off the altar, and in his place, the ram is killed and burnt. 
his faith that God, Abraham's faith that God would keep his promises, preserve and protect Isaac through whatever means, and yet provide a sacrifice as had been required, had been proven right. So in verse 15, as we proceed on, the angel of the Lord calls out again. So just a, just a slight tangent here. We've talked a little bit in the past about the angel of the Lord. Shows up, showed up in Judges. He showed up in, in Joshua as the commander of the Lord's army. We even saw it just a few chapters ago uh, in the Lord caring for Hagar. So what's interesting here, and I think I just wanted to highlight for a moment, is uh, how the angel of the Lord speaks for God and then speaks as God in the same sentences. So if you look at verse 12, right? Uh, do not lay your hand on the boy or do something to him, for now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. So you fear God, talking in the third person, and then from me, talking in the first person. And you get the same thing in verse 16. By myself I have sworn, first person, declares the Lord, third person. What's going on here? It's like the, the angel of the Lord is schizophrenic in some way. It's a little confusing, but really I think what this is is a peek at the Trinity. Because we really believe that the angel of the Lord is Jesus himself. At this pivotal moment, Jesus from heaven speaks into what is going on. So he is both God, but distinct from God the Father, and so he speaks both in the first person, referring to himself and referring to God, uh, the triune God, and then speaks in the third person of God the Father. Just a little peek in the, third, in the Old Testament of the Trinity. So what does the, what does the uh, angel of the Lord say? He restates the promises he's made to Abraham. This time, with no conditions. At the beginning, it was, go here, and I will bless you. There's none of that. Here, he swears by himself. Right? By myself, I have sworn, declares the Lord. There's nothing higher for him to swear by. Right? I swear to God. You, he, that's him. There's nothing higher. So he swears to himself and says that uh, he, he restates because of Abraham's faith and obedience that he will fulfill his covenant promise. He will make his offspring as the stars of heaven, as the sand of the seashore, and all the nations of the earth will be blessed. An expansion a little bit of Genesis 12 where it said, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Now it's the nations. But did you notice in verse 17... There's an addition now. And your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. And in your offspring shall all the nation of the earth be blessed. Possess the gate of your enemies, meaning have victory or defeat, conquer, vanquish his enemies. Offspring. Offspring here is masculine singular. It's one offspring. Is he talking of Isaac? Is Isaac the one who is going to have victory over his enemies? Again, we get the answer 
in the New Testament. Galatians 3.16. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one. And to your offspring, who is Christ. The angel of the Lord is referring to Christ here. Christ is the one who will bless all the nations. Christ is the one who will have victory over his enemies. You see, this test is not just about Abraham. This test has another purpose. It was designed specifically with another purpose as well. And that's to foreshadow Christ and really to rehearse the sacrifice he would make on the cross. Isaac is laid out willingly on an altar of wood. We talked about this. An altar of wood that he carried up the hill. Abraham, his father, stands over him prepared to kill and sacrifice him. After the sentence of three days, Isaac is set free and brought back to life. Some scholars even say that that three days journey from where Abraham was in Beersheba would have covered the distance to Jerusalem and that quite possibly this hill is the very same hill where Jesus died on the cross. The ultimate demonstration of God's trust and sovereignty. So when you look at this passage, what are we to take from this? What, what, what is the application here for us? Are we, are we called to emulate Abraham's faith? Prepare for a test? A test of our obedience? I heard that pas- this passage taught that way. Identify your Isaac. What are you holding on to too tightly that is keeping you from submitting yourself in full obedience to the Lord? Identify that idol. Lay it on the altar and sacrifice it to God. Now, it's true that we are tested. But just like the test patterns that we started with, the purpose of the test dictates how it's designed and what will result from it. And 1 Peter tells us the purpose. This is our memory verse. And we've gone to it a bunch, and it is just so rich. So we're going to read the whole thing. So this is 1 Peter 1. 3 to 7. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he's caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes through, or though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. The tests that we face, the trials, What is their purpose? Why do we face them? To result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Are we to fear the Lord? Absolutely. Are the trials we face meant to test 
our fear of the Lord and a pass-fail option. No. They are meant to bring praise and glory and honor to Jesus, and we get to share in that when we are with him in heaven. When we look at this test that Abraham faced, we should see Jesus has already passed this test on our behalf. I don't think we identify with Abraham in this story. I think we identify with Isaac. We are called to walk in humble obedience as Isaac did. He followed his father. He learned. He asked questions. But when he faced this test, Abraham pulled Isaac off the altar and sacrificed the unblemished ram in his place. In the same way, God pulled us off the cross and sacrificed the perfect lamb of God in our place. Abraham sacrificed a ram whose horns were caught in a thicket. Jesus, the lamb of God, who wore a crown of thorns. We don't have to face the same test that Abraham faced, a perfect obedience. Christ has done that for us already. Our trials aren't about pass-fail test of obedience. That test has been perfectly passed on our behalf. Trials and tests aren't, for us, aren't about God, or sorry, trials and testing for us are about God making adjustments, corrections, not bringing judgment. Look at James 1, 2 to 4. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete and lacking in nothing. Our faith is tested to produce steadfastness to be pushing us toward perfection, completeness, conforming us to Christ. This is a test to conform, make adjustments, like the test pattern. The test revealed where we don't conform to the standard, that standard being Christ's perfection, his perfect obedience. God conforms us so that we may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. How do we count all trials as joy? Because they are meant to make us look like Christ. They aren't tests to be feared. If you are united to Christ, if you are in Christ, then there is no condemnation. There is no punishment. There is no failure. You can't fail in Christ. Do you fall short? Yes, absolutely. We all fall short but you can't fail. There's no fear because we can't fail. The test has already been passed. So you don't need to fear. Don't test me, God. I'll fail. I won't be able to let go of what I hold dear. I won't be able to do what you ask of me. God says, I already passed that test for you. I died and I conquered death for you. Rest in my victory. Believe that I can conquer death for you. I can, if I can conquer death for you, I can conquer anything. You don't need to withhold things from God. 
Realize you aren't captive to those things anymore. As Matt prayed this morning, for whoever that is, there isn't a test that you have to pass so that you're no longer captive. You're already free. It's not about what you're withholding, God. The question is, where are you bound that through Christ's victory on your behalf, you need to find freedom? You have the illusion you are bound. You are free. Jesus wants to make you more like him. He puts these tests before us so we can see where we need to make adjustments and be more like him, be conformed, be perfected, be made complete. So, in verse 19, we get a little bit of a happily ever after. So Abraham returned to his young men, and they arose and went together to Beersheba, and Abraham lived in Beersheba. The test has been passed. The promise is fulfilled. Isaac is alive. Abraham, Sarah, Isaac, living together in Beersheba. As I said, this really is the pinnacle of Abraham's story. The next couple of chapters will, they serve a bit as uh, some appendices to Abraham's life as we transition to more talking about Isaac. And so you get in verses 20 through 24 a short genealogy. And we've talked about this before. The genealogies in the Old Testament, specifically in Genesis, are used as markers of major transition points in Scripture. And so we get this genealogy here as we start to transition from focusing on Abraham to focusing on Isaac. But there's, there's a little bit of a sneak peek here. I was telling my wife, I kind of felt like a, if, you're, if you're a Marvel fan, you watch a Marvel movie, you got to stay in the theater till the mid credit scene because it's going to tell you what's going to happen in the next movie and what the linkage is there. That's what this is. This is the mid credit scene. The important thing for our consideration is Rebecca. So what we learn here is what's going on with Nahor, which if you go back and look at the genealogy in chapter 11, you would see that's Abraham's brother. And it tells us all of the descendants that were born to Nahor. And the important one that we will learn more about and will become particularly important for Isaac is about Rebecca. So we hear here, Bethuel fathered Rebecca. I'm really glad I don't, I'm not going to read all those names. Mark did it perfectly, so I don't have to try and figure out how to pronounce them all. So we'll hear more about Rebecca in a few weeks. That's your teaser, your mid-credit scene of what's yet to come. So what's our application here? You know, Matt wrote an email of application from last week, and he talked about, and he wrote, in light of all you have seen through the past week, month, year, the challenges, the trials, the suffering and joys, how do you think God wants you to know him? I didn't read this in his email until I was pretty far along in my preparation here, but I thought it fit really well here, right? So I just want to add to his application from last week. In these trials, in the suffering, in the joys that are uniquely crafted and designed for you, not only does God want you to know him, where is he telling you to make adjustments? Where is he telling you that you need to be conformed? Not to gain his approval, not to pass a test. Christ has secured that for you already. 
but so that you can be conformed to look more like his son. Pursue that this week. Ask God, where do I need to be conformed so that I can look more like your son? Let me pray. Lord, thank you that you sent your son Jesus to replace us on the cross, to pass the test of obedience in our place that we had no hope of passing. Thank you that we are free from all bondage to anything on this earth. Thank you that for the trials and the suffering and the joys that we face, not because we enjoy them, Lord, but because you use them to conform us to be more like your son. Conform us to the image of Jesus. Build our faith, God, that you are sovereign, that you are worthy to be trusted in these trials in the suffering, and in the joy, Lord, that you are sovereign over all of it, every circumstance. Lord, make, make our hearts desire to be more like your Son, so that when we see you face to face, we can share in that praise and the honor and glory in heaven with you forever and ever. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen.